0: Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give five, ten, or twenty dollars a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy, and for today's interview, I'm joined by Nina Jankowicz, the first disinformation fellow at the Wilson Centre and the author of the new book, How to Lose the Information War, which is out on 9th of July 2020. Nina Jankowicz, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Edward. Why did
0: you decide to write this book into misinformation and fake news? and particularly focusing on what Russia's been doing
1: Sure. So my background is in Russian and East European affairs. I did two degrees in this stuff. So it's my lens for a lot of the world's problems. And I think there's a a lot of lessons to learn uh, when you look at this region, um, particularly when we're talking about democracy, technology and the information space. And so in 2016, 2017, I was working as a strategic communications advisor to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Ukraine. I did that through a Fulbright fellowship. Um, So I was there kind of, you know, de facto representing uh, the U.S. government, though as a private citizen, as you do in a Fulbright. Um, And I was there as the whole 2016 election unfolded and watching it from – what many people consider the, the front lines of the information war, you know Ukraine has been dealing with certainly Soviet disinformation for for decades, but um, was the first one of the first countries to experience the modern online Russian information war uh, starting in two thousand and fourteen during the uh, revolution of dignity, the euromaidan revolution that, that happened there then um, and so it became clear to me as I watched the discourse unfold from Kiev that The United States and and the West writ large was really behind uh, the Eastern and Central European countries in in their thinking on this issue. We tended to think of disinformation as something that always happened, you know, to our Eastern European allies that wasn't ever going to come for us. And it was clear that in 2016 it did come for us. Um, And then we seemed to forget that they had experienced it at all. And we were trying to reinvent the wheel with our responses to disinformation um so i had been doing a bunch of research while i was in kiev and um Since, you know, the Trump administration had just started its transition, uh, my career plans kind of shifted a little bit. Um, Certainly as someone who had been, you know, critical of uh, Trump, the candidates, uh, Russia policy, I didn't think there would be a place for me in government. And so this, you know, was going to be a a critical issue um, for the United States and the world in the next couple of years. And I decided to stake out my territory, I I guess you might say, um, and write the story of these countries that had been dealing with the the Russian disinformation threat long before we even recognized it. Um, And so the book goes through five different case studies from Central and Eastern Europe Estonia the Republic of Georgia Poland Ukraine and Czech Republic and talks about what the United States and other Western democracies can learn from their response um, and it also you know I think has a lot of lessons to bear for this current moment that we're in you know not only disinformation related to the election but we're looking at disinformation uh, an unprecedented amount really for uh, related to the coronavirus as well as uh, the social unrest and uh, the murder of, of George Floyd in, in police custody, um, all of this stuff has, has just unleashed this unprecedented information flow. And I think um, now more than ever, it, it's time for us to act. And that's not only time for governments to act, it's time for voters to act and demand of our elected officials that uh, you know, they return to or respect for the truth. Um, and that's kind of the story that the book tells in a nutshell.
0: As you touched on there, this isn't something that's a new phenomenon. We've seen disinformation occur in various different forms throughout history, notably during the Cold War, even in the media at the time. So newspapers, they were using disinformation on both sides to try and sway public opinion within different countries. How has disinformation really evolved from those days? Obviously, the medium in which... They seek to spread that data information has changed. But do you think it's gotten more substantive now because we live in a digital world? Or do you think it's at similar levels from different governments as it was back then? But it's just that we're now more familiar with it because we live in this digital world. We can call it out. We can see it as soon as it appears.
1: So I think there's a couple of key differences, especially when we're talking about Russian disinformation. The first is that Soviet propaganda, as we knew it, was always trying to promote the Soviet worldview and promote the Soviet Union as kind of a a great power. Um, The way that Modern Russian disinformation works is very different in that it will support any cause on whatever side of the political spectrum uh, it deems to be, you know, necessary. So long as that cause is basically denigrating the Western world order, uh, undermining democracy, and pitting Western citizens against one another, um, it doesn't matter if it's a left-leaning cause or a right-leaning cause. Uh, in fact, we know that Russia supported both, for instance, Bernie Sanders, Jill Stein and Donald Trump during the elections uh, in 2016. So um, often these these interests are at odds with one another. And that might seem a little bit contradictory. But again, the point is to undermine our trust in information, undermine trust in institutions, and ultimately keep us so distracted that we are not worried about Russia's adventurism in other parts of the world. Uh, And it kind of, then, in a roundabout way, elevates Russia back to its great power status um, that you know Putin and his coterie of advisors uh, so long for so that they 've missed since the soviet union so that 's the first difference, but the second difference is the means of delivery and it 's not just that information can travel faster and farther than it has um, or than it did in the in the soviet period it 's that the social media platforms give any bad actor, any person with Uh, a social media account and a credit card, or the ability to game the algorithms, a chance to target their information at the populations that are going to be most vulnerable to it. So it's not like um, they're sending you know, fake news or fake accounts uh, to Texas to say, you know, uh, let's elect a Democratic socialist for president. Um, They're sending or targeting information there that is, you know, extremely patriotic or sometimes about Texas secession or things like that. They know how to target it. um, and, And they have a really acute understanding of the divisions in our society. And social media allows them to exploit that. Uh, Essentially, disinformation has been democratized by these platforms. Um, And it's something that's really scary, especially when you see uh, just recently several articles claiming that Mark Zuckerberg continues to put his bottom line and his good graces with people like President Trump ahead of democracy in the country that allowed his company to flourish. So it's a very complex problem, uh, certainly old tactics being amplified by new means um, and, and made much more potent by those means as well.
0: Given that Russia's aim here is not to support the Democrats or the Republicans, it's to undermine democracy, it's to sow chaos and confusion in the political system. Do you think it's really misguided of the Republicans in particular in America and those on the right who over the last few years have done very little to address the misinformation that comes out of Russia and the impacts that this information war has had? because it so far has benefited them politically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that I say a lot is that disinformation is not a partisan issue. It is a democratic one. And I mean, democratic with a small D. It affects our democracy. Uh, that is the ultimate victim. And... um You know, I know that there are Republicans who care very deeply about this issue, but unfortunately it has become so politicized in the United States right now that they're happy to have a private briefing about it, but when it comes out uh, or comes time for them to, you know, take a stand and speak publicly about it, it happens much less often. Um, And, you know, I think our our democracy is the one that's suffering for that. Um, I, I do think, you know... This, to some extent, has happened on on both sides of the aisle. The Democrats, of course, have been a lot more proactive in getting legislation uh, through the House, in particular since they've had the House uh, under their control since 2018, um, and speaking out about these issues. But unfortunately, sometimes the way that they do that, um, I think— for audiences that are not already on their side, they see that as politicization as well. And I think it's better if everyone just remove the context of of politics from, from this and explain what the threat is in really simple terms. So, uh, you know, I like to say. It doesn't matter what country is doing this. It doesn't matter what party they're supporting. Uh, Americans are the ones that are supposed to be deciding who will represent them in Congress, in the White House, et cetera. And we should not, you know, very willingly uh, allow another country to influence our democratic discourse. And that that goes, you know, that holds true for for any any democracy. Um, And I think... Unfortunately, we've kind of we've kind of lost that. We think, you know, this is the Wild West of the information age and uh, whatever anybody can do is fine. You know, anything goes. Um, But we need to kind of bring that civic duty and moral responsibility back to politics, not only from our, our politicians, but for voters as well.
0: You talk about the importance of understanding that threat that exists there. And your book, as you touched on, has looked at the motivations behind the information warfare efforts that Russia has launched, has got these case studies of other countries that have had similar experiences to what the U.S., what the U.K. have been going through in recent years. What have you learned there that we should all be aware of, these tactics that Russia is deploying that we could keep an eye out for try and spot in our day-to-day lives so we don't fall for it as ordinary citizens.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I think surprised me when I was writing the book, it's been kind of a three year long process from uh, the very first interview I did in Ukraine in June of 2017 to, you know, publication. Um, I think the tactics that bad actors are using, and again, this isn't only Russia that's doing this, they're really shifting because of the growing awareness um, in our societies, uh, among governments that are trying to counter this stuff. And, you know, begrudgingly with the social media firms as well, we're going to see a lot less of kind of the cut and dry fakes that we used to see Um, rather than, you know, fake accounts, fake news websites, stuff like that. We're seeing a lot more information laundering. So essentially planting a narrative among authentic local voices and having them take that forward rather than you know those cut and dry fake accounts that we saw before and that makes it really hard to track this stuff Um, I think a lot of people are still in the mind space that they can spot a Russian bot on Twitter. Actually, Russia's using a lot fewer bots these days because it's, you know, the social media platforms are are spending a lot of money trying to detect them. Um, But especially in the U.S. with our First Amendment and our commitment to free speech, um, the platforms and law enforcement are going to be a lot more hesitant to take down disinformation when it's coming from an authentic local American voice. And so that's kind of the the trend that we've been seeing um, not only here in the United States but in places like Ukraine, where uh, during 2019, when they were in the lead up to their presidential election, the one that brought in Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, the infamous new Ukrainian president, um, Russia had been renting out accounts from Facebook accounts from Ukrainians in order to get around like geographical ad targeting restrictions. So they're finding ways. Um, around all these new restrictions, around this new awareness, um, and that makes it a lot more difficult to detect now what what can normal people do I think it's really important that everybody just take a little bit more time when they are consuming and sharing information on the internet um, particularly as conversations move into closed spaces like encrypted messengers like groups on Facebook um, this is something that we really need to watch out for and if you don't know someone personally or if you've not had you know a face-to-face conversation with them or seen them in in real life, I would suggest, uh, Really, really vetting that information that's coming from those unknown unknown sources uh, much more carefully than you would otherwise, because you don't know uh, how that information made its way to them, whether that was through an ad, whether that was through you know another closed channel, um, and it was planted there by a bad actor. And there's just too many people uh, who are manipulating the information space right now and manipulating the way the social media platforms work um, and manipulating our emotions at a very, you know, uh, uncertain and scary time in the world with the pandemic going on. Um, There's too many people who are trying either to sell snake oil cures, make a quick buck, you know, put something forward that's going to be politically beneficial to them. And we all need to do a little bit more to protect that information environment.
0: You've described combating Russia's disinformation techniques as whack a troll, Is that that issue that you're talking about, how Russia will regularly just keep popping back up with the sort of content that they're trying to put out? It's quite difficult to directly suppress account after account after account. It's a wider problem that exists in the system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Whack a troll, I think, characterizes the Western response so far, um, especially from the social media platforms. You know, we hear about all these takedowns that they've done. That's great, um, but there's a lot more to Russian influence operations than just fake accounts. It, it really plays on our emotions. Um, you know, they're able to narrative launder uh, their messages from you know the Kremlin and Kremlin-sponsored media to Legitimate American outlets, whether those are fringe outlets or, or otherwise, um, and we're we're really not guarded against that, both in the media, but then at the uh, the scale of normal people as well. So this is another big theme in the book. Um, the countries that have been most successful and have built up the most resilience to Russian disinformation campaigns are ones that invest in people. Um, they invest in things like media literacy, uh, civics, and you know, basic cyber hygiene skills. The sorts of things that can really protect a society and, and help them be better equipped to navigate the information flow that they're encountering now, not only coming from foreign sources, but you know, the manipulation that does definitely occur in the domestic media space as well. Um, So I'd like to see us really invest in more long-term generational solutions. And in addition to that skills building I mentioned, there's also um, investing in in things like journalism as a public good. Uh, I know, you know, I'm very jealous of the U.K. uh, and the fact that you have the BBC, which, yes, of course, is is not without its shortcomings sometimes. But when you look at polling, something I think over 55 percent of Brits trust the BBC in a time of crisis. And I cannot think of a single media outlet in the United States that uh, that would, you know, gain the trust of, of so many Americans. We are uh, more distrustful of our media than ever. And I think that's a real shame. Um, so I'd like to see us invest more in public media. Of course, um, this is a trend that uh, has been on the downturn over the past several decades. But especially during the Trump administration, we've seen defund NPR um trending just last week here in the United States, we've seen the Secretary of State you know uh, bar an NPR reporter from um, from covering his his trips abroad uh, because of a disagreement about how an interview unfolded and uh, two weeks ago here in the United States we saw. Uh, Trump's new appointee to the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which oversees our Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, and other uh, internationally focused public media outlets, uh, fire a bunch of the directors there who weren't political appointees, they were, you know, professionals, um, and and replace the board, which I think is a, a real um, harbinger of things to come. Uh, and then his next action after that was to bring back editorials to the Voice of America. So I think what we'll be seeing is Is not really voice of America, but voice of the Trump administration instead of this, you know, source for independent news in places like Russia and Ukraine. Um, That makes me really worried. So, I I mean, again, we need to focus on these citizens based solutions, as I call them, uh, informing the public, not taking away their discretion, but helping them navigate this unprecedented flow of information.
0: One of the things that you've touched on so far is obviously the role that social media companies have to play in all of this. And we regularly see social media companies claim that there's so much content on their site that it's almost impossible for them to monitor everything in a speedy manner, especially when most of the content doesn't need monitoring. We saw that, in fact, from Facebook the other day, arguing that there are – 115 billion messages posted on the site every day, and almost all of those are perfectly acceptable messages. What do you make of that sort of excuse that we get from Facebook? Twitter have said similar things. YouTube, again, talk about how much content is put out there when people challenge whether they're doing enough to deal with bad actors in their system. What do you make of those excuses that they put forward?
1: Well, I think they're exactly that, they're excuses. Uh, In Facebook's case in particular, this is a multi-billion dollar company uh, that, you know, many billions of people around the globe rely on for information. Um, And the fact that their scale has gotten so large that they cannot enforce their own terms of service on their platform is a huge problem. Um, but regarding Nick Clegg's statement about the 115 billion messages, you know, all it takes is one terrorist to live stream his shooting spree, as he did in New Zealand. All it takes is, uh, you know, one boyfriend, angry ex-boyfriend, to post a, a compromising picture of his ex to drive a suicide, right? How do you, how do you measure that harm? Um, compared to the 114,999,999,999 pieces of content that uh, that are positive, you know, cat gifs and I love yous, right? I think that's really impossible to do, and it, it shows how warped Facebook's approach to their platform is. I'm not asking for every piece of content to be, uh, overseen by Facebook or for, you know, content, Facebook to decide what content, every piece of content stays and goes, um, that, that would be untenable. But what I am asking is for the platforms that are making so much money off of our personal data and our interactions to give us a little bit more transparency about why the information that we are seeing is making its way to us, uh, and to not incentivize bad behavior on the platform. I just, wrote a piece uh, with a colleague, Cindy Otis, a couple of weeks ago for Wired that explores how Facebook groups are essentially driving uh, indoctrination and extremism on the platform, and Facebook is is encouraging that by suggesting users, other groups on the platform, once they join one group. So, for instance, I joined uh, a, an alternative health science news group to kind of monitor what they were saying about Uh, Covid and was immediately suggested to join a white supremacist group, a QAnon conspiracy group, and a group that uh, looked at different events around the world as false flag operations. So so another form of conspiracism uh, right away after joining it. And then, you know, my group suggestions after that were populated with all sorts of similar things. And Facebook wants to incentivize that because it wants to drive more engagement on the platform, keep you interested, keep you clicking around and looking at ads and generating data Data that it can then use to serve you more ads. I mean, it's it's really sick, Um, and I don't think the platforms are interested in giving us that transparency because it would blow the the roof off how their business model works and the way that they're making money off of us. So, yeah, I really don't – I don't buy those excuses. I know there's a lot of positive content on the web, but it's not a one-to-one ratio for uh, harm done versus uh, the amount of positive messages exchanged. Um, As anybody who has experienced any sort of online abuse can can attest to – you know, one message can, can really drive people away from engaging. Um, and when it comes to our democratic discourse, I don't think that is a, a risk we should be willing to take. Um, I think these companies need to invest their gains, in many cases, their ill-gotten gains into protecting our democratic discourse, um, with a little bit more, if not a lot more, uh, enthusiasm.
0: Given how social media has become this fixture of most people's lives and there are those that believe that the companies behind those social media sites have become so impossibly large to tame, is there a way to rein in these companies? Because we've heard about regulation being put in place by one country or another, but these companies are obviously international. We've seen how they move around to avoid paying taxes in certain countries, I'm sure they could find a way to avoid having to follow certain regulation by moving themselves around. So how do we rein in these companies to ensure that they are forced to address dangerous or misinformation? They can't make the excuses that we're just talking about there.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point, and it's another place where the United States has has truly abdicated its responsibility on behalf of the rest of the world. I mean, most of these countries are headquartered here. They were created here. Um, and as a result, the regulation that we put into place is going to have ripple effects. It's not going to necessarily um, mean that Facebook can't decide, for instance, to have a different regulation uh, if it were invited to, to you know, go into the Chinese market, for for instance – but it will set a democratic standard for social media regulation. Um, and I think we're really doing a disservice to billions of people around the world by uh, by keeping our social media regulation, um, you know, in the election security graveyard that is uh, Capitol Hill legislation about this sort of thing right now. Um, that being said, I think there's opportunity for... Many of our international political structures um, to serve as bodies that could help create a cooperative solution in this area. I think the, uh, the European Union has done some admirable work. I, I don't think many of their regulations have too, you know, <laughs> the the right amount of teeth. Let's let's put it that way. Um, I've not seen. Uh, a good indication that GDPR is actually um, protecting Europeans from, you know, predatory uh, data schemes the way that we hoped it would. It's still pretty new, though. Um, the European Union also has a code of practice on disinformation that it entered into with the social media companies, but it's not binding. Um, so again, would like to see a little bit more oomph be- behind both of those things. And actually. In the U.K. in many cases is is filling the gap where the United States uh, has been absent. Um, the Grand Committee on uh, Fake News and Disinformation that used to be headed by Damian Collins in Parliament, I think, did a really good job of holding social media firms' feet to the fire and exposing some of the bad practices that um, – that they were engaging in. And then, you know, I think your your DCMS committee uh, has has just done a really good job of exploring these issues um, in a really holistic way. So I look forward to seeing that regulation uh, come to pass and hopefully serving as a model for other countries um, until <laughs> the U.S. can get our, our stuff together. And hopefully, you know, uh, when we do, we'll we'll look to your legislation as well, because I do think it is um it's it's quite quite good, uh, although we'll we'll probably have some issues with uh, the way that you respond to freedom of speech because we obviously are just very libertarian in that way. Um, but but I think there's ways to pursue democratic you know regulations that preserve people's right to free speech um, and free expression while still you know creating a balance of making sure that vulnerable voices aren't being exploited uh, on platforms. Um so I know that's kind of a wishy-washy answer. Uh it's a big it's a big topic, a big problem and I think one thing that is a little bit heartening to think about is that at this point in the creation of the automobile, you know, we didn't have any safety regulations either. It's still early days for the internet, uh but we're losing we're losing ground pretty quickly and so it's time time for our governments to act and I I hope um that if there is a bit of a political shift in 2020 here in the United States, that we will begin to see that on Capitol Hill as well.
0: You touched on an interesting point there, which is the issues around freedom speech in the U.S. and therefore controlling what can and can't be, what should or should not be shared or allowed to be shared and posted on social media sites. How do you... I think we could get around that because that's something that as soon as any proposal is going to be put forward to Congress, and we've seen it even in conversations that have occurred so far, that there are going to be members of Congress who are instantly opposed to any form of regulation or any laws imposed on social media companies because they believe it will have a negative impact on that First Amendment right
1: yeah it's obviously a really complex issue. Um, I think there is a widespread misconception that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and any other social media platform that they are free speech zones um, they aren't they're they're private platforms and as such have a right to regulate what kind of content is allowed on them and in fact, they already do that. They have terms of service um, unfortunately, those terms of service are not uh, evenly enforced, and in many cases are, are kind of not enforced at all because they're unwilling to make the investments needed uh, to do so. And certainly we've seen, again, that uneven enforcement related to politicians around the world, including President Trump. Um, that being said, again, my my view is that we don't need necessarily uh, to remove content Um In fact, there was a a misleading post that was just taken down. There was the number one post on Facebook uh, this past week and contained um, a falsehood and Facebook took it down, but by the time they had taken it down, millions of people had already seen and interacted with that post. Uh, They get no notification when a post is taken down, um, kind of like a correction in a newspaper. You have to wonder what effect that really has, uh, because the people who consume that media aren't seeing it. And there's evidence that fact checks actually don't change people's opinions after the fact anyway. So... um, my point is that no matter what the post is that is being uh, left up or taken down, um, what we need to do is give people more context. So when takedowns do happen, I would love to see uh, users get a notification that they interacted with a piece of content that was taken down. Here's why it was taken down. More transparency around that. More transparency around how ads are making their way to users. Uh, why certain groups are being suggested to them. Um all of these things, you know, would help people navigate the environment without infringing on on free speech and would kind of – Help dispel these conspiracy theories about social media platforms being part of some deep state cabal against one political party or another. Um, it's it's just not true, and I think there are some people who won't be moved by any of that information. But the majority of people who kind of occupy the middle of the political spectrum, um, I think, would would find it you know empowering to understand the information flow on the internet and why things are are popping up in their feeds. The other important point to make, and one that I've made in front of lawmakers and policymakers many times before, is that um, the the platforms aren't agnostic as they stand. Uh, the Just as, you know, there are exceptions made for newsworthiness and, and, you know, political statements made by powerful politicians, there's a lot of de facto suppression of speech going on on the platform simply because of the way that the platforms are built. So, um, for instance, a lot of content from, African-Americans is, you know, de facto removed without any adjudication because uh, the AI that Facebook uses doesn't really understand dialects that many black users are using. Um, And so it's removing that content because it contains words that set off the AI. Um, And and that's a suppression of speech that really isn't getting uh, a lot of a lot of traction anywhere. Um, a similar thing has happened in Ukraine to users who speak uh, a mix of Russian and Ukrainian. Um, again, Facebook really can't, can't deal with that sort of thing. So there is this suppression of speech that's going on. We think about it only in terms of, you know, uh, what... Political content is um, is staying up or coming down, but it's happening in in with relation to AI and it's also happening in relation to targeting. There's evidence that um, housing authorities for instance, We're able to exclude certain races, incomes, et cetera, from uh, housing advertisements, which is against the law here in the United States. Um, And again, we're not talking about that sort of de facto suppression that's going on on these platforms every day, but we get very angry when they take down things that are uh, a threat to our republic, right? So um, it's a complex issue. I am just in favor of more information uh, to arm users rather than taking things up. or taking things, leaving them up or taking them down rather. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that will assuage some of the fears of, uh, of those free speech advocates who worry about the effect uh, that more enforcement would have on our, uh, you know, freedom of expression.
0: Finally, what do you hope people will take away from this book that you've written and the steps that you hope that people, you've mentioned some of them in this interview, but the steps that you hope people who read it will go away and adopt to make sure that we're all much more savvy individuals when it comes to this sort of problem.
1: I think participation is the best way to fight back against disinformation. Um, As I was finishing the book, doing the final, final edits, uh, the impeachment proceedings were going on. And so the epilogue of the book is about impeachment and the the disinformation that we encountered that was being actively spread um, by especially the Republican Party during that process. Uh, And I close the book with the line, impeachments are rare, elections are yearly. The ultimate victim, again, of disinformation is democracy. Uh, Disinformers don't want us to participate, to make our voices heard, to protest, to vote. Um, And so the best thing that we can do to fight back against that is to do all of those things and to not get discouraged, to continue uh, to, to consume information in a responsible way and then put that knowledge to use. And so I hope that's what everyone will do. It's really a call to arms.
0: Nina Jankowitz, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That was Nina Jankowitz, the author of the new book How to Lose the Information War, which is out on the 9th of July 2020. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Wikipedia or at Wikipedia.substack.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe, or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrilee, and Nikki, who helped to make this show even better. Until next time. Goodbye.